This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, are Ukrainians getting used to the sounds and sights of war? Stepan Berko, Ukrainian advocate and lawyer, continues to share his story and experience of Ukrainians living through the brutal conflict he's in Lviv. We get a better understanding of high gas prices from energy expert and former Liberal MP Dan McTagg. He's with Canadians for Affordable Energy. Is the war in Ukraine the only reason for the energy crisis? Turns out it's just exaggerating an already underlying problem. And we're going to space. New and exciting ways with Andrew C. Ferreira. He helps us understand the newest photos of a black hole that have made their way around the internet, nuclear reactors on spaceships, and a very creepy door. This is the Shift Podcast. In Ukraine, the battles continue. Let's get right to it. And look out the window of a a Ukrainian man named Stepan Berko. He's an advocate, works hard for the people. Stepan, how are you? Hey Shane, I'm doing all right. Uh, how are things in uh, in Lviv today? It's been a few days since I talked to you, so I'm very much been looking forward to uh, hearing your voice and hearing what's going on in your world. So um, I think I would like to start, if it's okay with you. So just you know, what comes to mind? Uh, wh- how are things for you? Uh, for me personally, everything is okay. Uh, in Lviv, we had like a week or like a 10 days of calm days with no um, um, air alerts. But uh, this night was tough. Uh, we had two sirens at night and basically I've spent the whole night uh, in, in, you know, in the cover. Uh, and we had like nine missile rockets hitting our region. And uh, fortunately, none of them attacked uh, Lviv. But some uh, uh, hit the military infrastructure in in the region. So, uh, despite this calmness and uh, less um, air uh, alerts every day, the the danger still uh, is there. What does it look like, Stepan? When you when you, I guess, like sleeping is so precious. Of all the things that you know, I imagine if you could look backwards in time. Um, you know, the sleep must be so incredibly precious now. Can you help us uh, understand what those nights look like for you and how far is it to get underground for you? Uh, oh, actually, I'm not on the ground. I'm on the first floor of our house. We don't have a basement. So, okay. uh, yeah, I would say that this is uh, uh, our cover is more like a psychological uh, treatment for right. ourselves. <laughs> we think that we are more safe there. But, uh uh, first, it was really hard to sleep while you're waiting uh, in these uh, air alerts. But now it's uh, you know you get the, you get used to it, and you know that you have to sleep, and it's less comfortable to sleep on the floor, covered in blankets than in your bed. But since uh, you know that you have to go to your job tomorrow to your office, you have to have some sleep. And eventually, when some missiles hit and you hear the sound, uh, you wake up. Uh, obviously, it's uh, you know not the the best experience to to have, but uh, uh, you pray, you 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 hope that it's not hitting really close. And when you hear that the sounds disappear, you read the news on Twitter or on on our news websites. 
you get the information where the hits were, uh, and then and then you fall asleep again. Huh. I um I imagine it to be this. Uh, it seems to me from our conversations, you know, in Lviv with you and Hannah down in um in Odessa and, and all those that springtime in Canada, at least where I live in Canada, Canada is very big, right? And we, our climate is very different in in different places. But it seems like the timing of springtime seems to mirror uh, Calgary, where I live, for timing, right? Um, and I know that at, at you know over the last probably four weeks, you wake up in the morning, you walk outside, you can feel you start to feel the sun on your face for the first time, right? It's that it's that feeling of spring where you can actually feel it hit your face, and then you're like, oh, there it is. I remember that feeling because you haven't felt it in so long because the cold air takes over, and um, it must be so remarkable to have a night like that walk out in the springtime when you are going to your job like you said you got to keep working and then you feel that spring feeling now in your heart all of the years of your life that's been a wonderful feeling and at the same time you're looking around to make sure everybody's okay what has changed you know what do you see it must be with mixed emotion that even walking out of the house to go to work in the morning has these memories of old and how good spring feels but at the same time confusing Yes, Shen, you're right, because when it was winter and it was cold, you kind of felt this, uh, uh, I would say, the, the, the weather uh, uh, was uh, synchronized with the, with the situation in the country. And now when there's sun, uh, there's green grass and uh, cherries are blossoming, uh, you kind of feel this... Um, uh, yeah, this this feeling that you know the the, the nature goes the, its ordinary way, and uh, many people they have to live their lives as usual. But at the same time, missiles can hit any moment, and uh, our troops are fighting on the east, and uh, you kind of asking yourself uh, yourself a question: uh, Is it norm? Is it new normal? So, uh, for how long will it last, and for how long will will we live in this kind of situation, and will we get used to it? And um, just uh, this weekend, I had uh, uh, I, me and my dad, we took our bikes and we rode just a few kilometers from my house to um, a small lake, and there were people. Uh, having like picnics near like as usual as they would I as that they would do before war and they do do it uh, right now and uh, you first the first thought is like hmm is it normal that people are dying uh, in your country and someone is having a picnic but at the same time I know that uh, all of us are under stress and maybe having a picnic is a good idea to to let the stress go at least for some time. So uh, it feels like uh, trying to live your normal life while still having war on the back of your mind is our new normal in Ukraine. Yeah, isn't it amazing how humans are very very good at creating that new normal and adapting, and at the same time, we are absolutely terrible at change and at adapting. I mean, I guess I would I would add from the outside not that my opinion matters but my my opinion would be that i suppose if you want to get you know philosophical about it 
the story of that picnic is exactly what everybody's fighting for anyway. So you have to have both. Yeah, I agree. Because when the war started, uh, my first thought was that, you know, Russians started the war because they wanted to take away our way of life, how we like to live our lives. And uh, someone has to fight and someone has to show that uh, uh, this fight is not... uh, worthless that we continue to live our lives we continue to sing the songs we like and to visit parks we like so i would agree with you Mm -hmm. how is your dad doing um i'm super curious if your dad's got an awesome mustache like you do (laughs) no (laughs) he doesn't uh he's doing all right he he he's continuing his job uh of course he misses our mom who is right now in Italy, uh, but we're doing all right. We're having this, uh, you know, sun and that time for already two months that we never had before for for a long time. So I would say uh, we found our way to 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 you know to get uh, adjusted to this situation. Stepan Berko's in Lviv, Ukraine. Um, let's talk about the hard stuff. There seems to be some good news. Uh, coming out of Mariupol, uh, Ukraine's defense ministry is saying that 264 fighters have been able to leave uh, the Avalstal plant um, and 53 heavily injured fighters have been taken out as well. And 211 um, uh, the also injured have been taken out as well. What are you hearing about this? This seems like, I mean, the devastation is not good news, but this seems like one little piece of light in all the darkness that has been Mariupol for the last couple of months. Yeah, you're right. This information was like number one news yesterday evening. Um, So from what we hear, yes, these people were evacuated from Azovstal. Unfortunately, they were evacuated to the occupied territories. And uh, our general staff is saying that they will be uh, exchanged for Russian prisoners of war. So we hope that there will be exchange. And they will get to uh, to you know to our liberated territories. You um, mean um, you mean the occupied Ukrainian occupied Ukrainian territory, but not Russia, right? Yes, yes, occupied occupied by Russia, uh, okay. territories of Donetsk Donetsk region, uh, and they we hope that they will be uh, yeah ex- um, there will be an exchange of prisoners of war. Uh, there is still uh, an uncertainty uh, uh, regarding what will happen with those fighters who are still in Azovstal, who were not injured, and there, um, from from different sources, I heard that there remain a couple of uh, hundreds of soldiers there, and our general staff is saying that uh, uh, we are doing our best to kind of negotiate the way of them getting out. And uh, I hope that uh, uh, they will they they will return back to their homes. I mean, they're real heroes because uh, because they managed to hold twenty thousand Russian troops for two months, and this gave uh, our military a great opportunity to you know not get these twenty thousand of Russian troops in other places like Kharkiv or like other places in Donbass. So we, we all here uh, uh, re- refer to Mariupol uh, fighters as heroes. Mm-hmm. I bet. Um, it's the thing, Mariupol and the Azovstal, how do I say it properly, Azovstal? 
Yes, yes, you're you're saying okay. correctly. Um, the Azovstal plant. I mean, as a steel plant, you would think that if Russia wanted to take it over, that would be a, a fantastic economic engine for them to keep and keep it functioning. And they've literally obliterated it. It's one of those sort of juxtaposed things that's been happening of Russia's behavior and all of this. Like you think they would keep some of the assets for their own good if their intention was to stay there, but yet here it is destroyed. Oh, this is, you know, the way you view the situation, the way you think about how the war should be conducted, it's not the way Russians think. First of all, you have to understand that Ukrainian uh, steel plants and coal mines, they, for 30 years, they were, uh, uh, you know, playing on the same market with Russian steel plants and coal mines. And they didn't like this... Uh, how to say, uh, you know, uh, they didn't like that we could uh, um, make some competition with them. And that's why destroying these steel plants, it's, uh, you know, it plays along with the, uh, uh, you know, general goal of Russian economy. Uh, because uh, the, the less steel producers there are, the more demand there is for Russian uh, steel. And uh, this is the for first point. And the second point, they don't care about the 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 the, the lands they are conquering. They, they are, you know, th this will be a no man's land. I mean, they will destroy. They are destroying cities. They are destroying everything, and people will not be able to survive in these places. So, it seems that they are not even planning to rebuilding anything. It's just, uh, you know, like a buffer zone for them. So uh, I agree that uh, these are the first questions that uh, you know a, a reasonable person was would ask itself him him or herself why would you destroy some some potential economical um, you know uh, assets but that's what Russians do. Well, you raise a really, really good point. I didn't think of it from the competition perspective. Um, that's remarkable. So there's new news that's come out in the last few minutes that says Putin's making military decisions in Donbass, um, according to Western military. The other news, of course, uh, there's two pieces here. Uh, step in on it if you like, but um, Kharkiv is has had some great success around there with pushing people back. And then there's the conversation around Sweden and Finland uh, going um, from neutral to NATO, I guess, is kind of the way to describe it. How do Ukrainians chat about that when you sit down and you're able to have a coffee with your colleagues at work? Um, what does that conversation look like? Yeah, um, everybody's really happy about Kharkiv uh, because uh, it's second largest city and uh, it was heavily shelled uh, and some areas of the city are completely destroyed. Uh, and... Thanks to our troops, people can return to Kharkiv. And I know that even uh, some state institutions are coming back and courts are planning to resume their activity next week. So that's a good sign. Uh, regarding Finland and Sweden, uh, it seems that uh, Putin has achieved the quite opposite of what he expected. He achieved an enlargement of NATO on his north flank. Uh, and that's probably good. Um, but you know, when Ukrainians hear this uh, this this news that NATO is ready to accept Finland and uh, Sweden right away, <laughs> that raises a question to us: Why were they all these years saying that uh, 
there is no possibility of Ukraine not even joining NATO, but getting the the um, even their prospects of membership in some near future. So what's the difference between Finland and Ukraine? Is it the only difference that Russia doesn't want to conquer or occupy the whole Finland and still wants to occupy whole Ukraine? So is it because, uh, you know, as during the World War II, Finland is not the sphere of interest of Russia, but Ukraine is? And it seems that the, the answer to this question lies somewhere in this, in this area. Uh, mm. But uh, on the other hand, what um, some experts say, and I would agree, that if Finland and uh, Sweden are, are accepted and uh, swiftly accepted to NATO, this paves uh, a way for Ukraine as a precedent. So when we are ready, when we win this war, uh, and we apply for NATO membership. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this uh, Swedish and F F Finns uh, experience will be a precedent for us, and we will use it saying, okay, they were accepted really quickly. Why shouldn't we get accepted really quickly? Well, with the insertion of all kinds of Western and NATO-friendly technology, you would think that would also accelerate that because some of the technology that was missing in the past is being inserted now. So it's absolutely remarkable um, for that perspective. Stepan Berko is in Lviv. I have a favor to ask, Stepan, if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Next time you go for a bike ride with your dad, just imagine that you know, all of this audience all across Canada is with you. And, you know, we want to we want to experience that part as well. And so tell your please tell your dad that I say hi um, and um, that we think about him and you and, um, you know, all of your brothers and sisters in Ukraine and, and you're on our mind. And and when you tell us stories about going for a bike ride with your father, uh, we all relate to that. So next time you go for a bike ride with dad, uh, keep in mind that we're with you. And, uh, and I think that's, I think it's one of the beautiful things of the world today that we're able to do this from the other side. Shane, I will definitely do that. And thank you and thank all Canadians for your support. We feel this support, both from, uh, you know, military perspective and economic perspective and human to human perspective. So thank you for that. And talk your dad into the mustache, will you? <laughs> okay, I will try. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. This is the Shift Podcast. Over the weekend, this weekend, more record highs when it comes to energy, gas, everything else. I know that for me, for example, I saw an increase of about 25% on my power bill. Now, I believe that, in all fairness, that could be natural gas and power combined. Didn't look at it. Just kind of looked at the number and went, whoa, that's the biggest number I've ever seen. And then uh, moved along. So what is the conversation from the weekend? What can we look forward to heading into the long weekend this weekend? Uh, he's the only guy that I know that talks about summer gas and winter gas. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Da Dan McTagg is here. He's president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and... Um, and talking about the uh, talking about the gas again, Dan. Uh, this is a little bit of Groundhog Day, my friend. I'm, I'm to be honest. Look, I like your handsome face on our Zoom calls, but this is getting tiresome. It really is. It is. Well, imagine that you. I don't want to hear myself talking about it anymore. To the point where 
it's actually getting mundane and it's uh, it's getting pretty painful. I, I think I'm even losing sight of why I started doing this many years ago. And it, to put it in a nutshell, it was to try to save people a bit of money by trying to figure out how these companies priced. And uh, more importantly, uh, nothing more frustrating than passing a gas station at night uh, thinking you'll get a better deal in the morning and finding out it popped or went up 10 cents mm-hmm. a liter and then uh, kicking yourself. And how many times has that happened? And there's a story to that where, you know, I ran out of gas one day back in 1985 and promised I would do whatever I could to make sure that would never happen again because I had bought gasoline, uh, same amount. I was given a budget for my dad's little company and uh, had to do the delivery on the same amount that I always used. But because gas prices had gone up by seven or eight cents a liter, I literally ran out of gas at, uh, on the uh, at the four corners of the Don Valley Parkway in the 401. And that it was uh, with my little golden retriever beside me and I said, that'll never happen again. So it did. And I, I hopefully it doesn't happen to anyone else. Well, it is so incredibly true that it's impacting so many people in so many different ways. Uh, Canadians for affordable energy. Let's talk about that for one quick second. I mean, because when it came to your old political days before this, I mean, you actually beat up energy companies pretty good. And then, and it's funny because people, people hear what they want to hear, right? They don't listen. They seek evidence to support their opinion. And this whole conversation yep. changes when you just listen. Right. And I think that, there are so many people that hear uh, you and you talk about, you know, energy prices. And if you could have it, and you can obviously, you know, clarify, um, you know, you you are beating up the energy companies for um, you guys got to be better. You guys got to do more. You guys got to get work to get these prices down, too. But at this point, we're talking banks of government. Uh, that's that's not only handcuffing us as Canadians, but handcuffing the companies as well. Yeah, look, these companies are making a lot of money. Uh, and there are people who should be apologizing for the policies that they've created in this country and around the world by cutting off pipelines, by imposing regulations uh, such that it makes it impossible for anybody to want to even invest, much less be able to extract the thing that's uh, that's needed. We see taxation. We see this idea that somehow you can wish oil and gas away. Um, I've never set out to kill this industry. I set out to make it to discipline it, to make sure the Competition Act applied to it. And uh, in, in so doing, understood pretty much every aspect of it from wellhead right to, you know, the uh, the nozzle on the gas pump that you use. And it's taken me about, well, what year is this? 19, it's taken me almost 30 years to figure this out. Um, but what I have never, ever thought would happen is you would have people out there who would be continuing to say that we can do without mm-hmm. this product, that the world can get on without it, and that uh, Canada should be ashamed of itself. Uh, Canada can do better. This is a false and very dishonest narrative, and it's a political one because it has now seized pretty much the you know the idea, the mantra of all major parties, like it or not, with some exceptions. And it is, uh, it's, it's extraordinarily dishonest. Uh, not that the intention is that, is that we should always be clean and not that this, oil, this industry called the oil sector has always been clean. It's never been clean in the past. But I think we have to recognize that it has a, an invaluable role, not just in terms of supporting our way of life, but uh, as Canadians, but in fact, supporting the quality of life that we now take so much for granted. And so it doesn't take much for Vladimir Putin to come along and remind us of just how important and strategic this product is but it does suggest that those who are attacking uh the idea that we should we can walk away uh, that we can you know that we can keep our fossil fuel industry alive well and healthy those who are attacking this 
are actually attacking Canadians and our bottom line. And I think for that reason, uh, it's uh, the, 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 the tide has turned in Canada. Uh, it's not that we don't think we have responsibility, but we should be apologizing for creating some of the cleanest products in the world. And more importantly, something the world desperately needs. Because the alternative, of course, Russia, Iran, Venezuela, you know, <laughs> take your pick. These are not exactly countries with great human rights records. And uh, it isn't lost on folks like myself, who served a bit of time in foreign affairs, that you see, you know, Europe and its willingness to go down this very dangerous, dark, unreliable path of... Uh, of renewables, which are neither affordable, scalable, or reliable, are now continuing to fund Mr. Putin's campaign to the tune of $1 billion a day against mm-hmm. Ukraine. So it's time for a change. Well, you know, it's it's interesting, and I'm going to call it for what it is. I mean, the reality is, is everybody who, the, the core of it anyway, I mean, the, the, the lemmings that follow is different. The drink the Kool-Aid, if you will. But the... Yeah. The core of the people who are there, the core of the people that are there um, doing this are heavily invested in the business of electricity, right? Like, we have to remember that there's always some sort of agenda at play. There is a ton of money to be made on electric cars. And there's a ton of money to be made on electricity. There's a ton of money to be made on uh, carbon offsets. I mean, most people don't understand that carbon offset is a for-profit business, Right. Like the, this is yeah. a for profit business. So if they do a calculation that says, well, you flew on a jet to here, you should pay thirty one dollars. They don't even have to tell you how many of the thirty one dollars went to tree planting. Right. Like they don't. And yeah. it's all for profit. Like everybody who's in it is deeply connected. And you can go down a rabbit hole of looking up uh, high profile people in Canada, even that stomp on this message. And you can find if you go on to go looking, you can find out what businesses they're invested in. And what carbon offset companies. So if everybody thinks this is an inside integrity conversation for electricity, it's just not, right? It's not an integrity. And that's the problem with it. I could handle it if it was like, if the evidence was there, then everybody would be like, yeah, okay, let's do it. What's the timeline? But it's not there. And we have to remember that these people are, I mean, you, you, we were beating up on the oil companies there for a sec. The, these people that are promoting this other agenda are all making money on this other agenda. Like, imagine this. Imagine Elon Musk going out and buying an oil company when he owns Tesla. Would that make sense? No. But if he bought a power plant or a hydro dam, everyone would be like, yeah. I mean, right? I mean, (laughs) they stand to make money, Dan. Yeah. Well, they always do. These are the green grifters. And they're not much different. It's just a question of how best to do it, uh, ensuring that the, the public gets fleeced. At the end of the day, if they can con us enough, they can win the day. Uh, if they can make us believe that, you know, the sun, uh, you know, uh, rises in the west and settles in the east, I'm sure there's some people out there who would actually believe that. But there is a far more serious concern that I think has now emerged, and that's uh, economic ruin. Um, the inability for people to make their way. Uh, these prices, and I'm not just talking gasoline, diesel the shortage of some of these commodities is becoming widely apparent. You know, I, uh, I wake up, uh, you know, every morning trying to figure out when the all clear sign is given in China and they finally decide they're going to stop these lockdowns um, and the resurgence in demand, what that will do to energy prices. And that, of course, I'm not just referring to, uh, you know, oil and gas, but 
everything. Uh, when crude starts to make its rise in the summer period, when there is higher demand for other petroleum products, this will send natural gas prices up, everything you can imagine. So a bad situation that we're complaining about now, that we're lamenting here in Canada, is about to get really, really nasty and take a a long-term, sharp turn that will cost and, and, and have reverberations on the price of everything for the foreseeable future. And I'm talking, I'm not talking, you know, three or four months and fall turns around and things get better. I'm talking five or six years with a government committed in Ottawa to in, in enhancing, uh, you know, uh, creating a greater burden on consumers, not just with the, uh, you know, the increase in the carbon taxes, but as you mentioned quite rightly, the, the carbon offsets, the so-called carbon credit market, uh, the clean fuel standard, that's all based on, Hey, leave your field fallow and we'll give you 10,000 bucks so that someone can buy an offset for you not moving your anything, you know, not disturbing the earth in your, in your, in your fallow field. It's been sitting there for 40 years doing absolutely nothing. Guess what I'm really more concerned about is the other shoe is going to drop real quick. Uh, people can't afford to make uh, ends meet. And uh, when you start messing around with people's ability to survive, uh, Shane, uh, you have more than a political problem mm-hmm. on your hand. We're going to have a crime problem on your hand, to be honest. I mean, that, that's what it's going to boil down to, because people are going to start ripping off pumps just so they can go places. When provincial governments and premiers are saying, it's time for you to rethink if you need to make that trip, that's problematic. Yes, that's you. so wild. Um, come on. I mean, this is you're supposed to promote the economy and, and everybody's safety. And if you're talking about people second-guessing those, those kinds of things, that's dangerous. Okay, here's some numbers for you, Dan. Okay, so I drive a diesel. Not everybody does. Diesel is a little bit more expensive right now um, than gasoline for the most part. Vancouver, BC, diesel the highest is 250 200 Well, that's a Freudian slip. Uh, for $2.58. In Vancouver, and uh, I paid in Calgary. I paid well in Airdrie, just outside Calgary. I paid two sixty eight, I think two sixty nine. And then, and then um, yep. here in Ottawa tonight, two forty five point nine for diesel, which I need to fill up uh, my car here uh, coming up on Wednesday for sure. So I, I mean, I am paying for my car here. Uh, 80, 90 cents more, 80, 90 cents. That's how much it was at the beginning of the pandemic um, per liter yeah. more here than I did there. And this is Ontario. So uh, what are we looking for to this weekend? If we could put a shake up the snow globe and grab the magic eight ball and, and guess a high number that we're going to see in 2022, we'll bet over a beer, maybe a nice whiskey. Um, what, um, what do we, uh, what are we going to see this week, and, and what's the highest number? Let's let's take a gander at it now. It's going to be ugly, but let's do it. Well, it depends on what happens in the markets Thursday and Friday. The early week markets are never very good, uh, but I would say uh, we hit 233.9 uh, on Sunday, yesterday, Monday, and for Tuesday in, in, uh, in Vancouver. That's going to drop three cents a liter. Uh, you won't see much of a change in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, uh, Ontario. Um, you're going to see what I had predicted to over two weeks ago. That's 210 for uh, the Labor Day long weekend. That's an average. Montreal will be in the 215, 216 range. The Maritimes, depending where you are, uh, but uh, Newfoundland will definitely move to about 224, 225, uh, St. John's and other areas uh, with all the other uh, provinces, uh, uh, Atlantic provinces moving to about 205. Mm-hmm. That's what I can see happening. Uh, I suspect 
the bigger shoe to drop will be the following week when the official or rather unofficial launch of the U.S. Memorial Day summer driving season begins. Then I think we are looking at a net increase across Canada of 10 cents a litre. So whatever number you're paying today, add 10 cents a litre. And if there's hurricanes and other uh, unusual activities or refineries not being able to stay up with the demand in the U.S., uh, China coming back online, you know, 15 cents a litre on top of what we're paying today. So uh, that's kind of the, uh, you know, the, the, the prognosis for the future. Uh, but it's very difficult uh, to estimate. I don't see a scenario of these things drop. I see a greater likelihood these prices will continue to go much higher as there just isn't enough fuel to go around. And we've we've second guessed. We've got it wrong. We, uh, you know, we, we thought we had this energy transition in a lick. We used the COVID period and demand and in, in, in drop in demand to assume that we'd have the great reset, the build back better, the, uh, the just transition, all this other, these nonsensical ideas that we could simply walk away from fossil fuels. And now no one wants to supply. No one can supply and the world needs more. So where does this end? Um, as I said, this is uh, we're in an energy super bubble. We're in an energy super cycle. Um, and it was one created by green policies. Bar none, there is no other reason, no excuse for this. The United States has to blame itself and the Biden administration for hemming in 1.5 million barrels a day. Yeah, sure, they, they'll give you the federal lease, but they won't give you the permit to actually use those leases. Here in Canada, we've, uh, we've, uh, we've uh, you know, snake-eyed and, and, and uh, destroyed the ability for us to get take have takeaway capacity and we've made regulations so prohibitive and proposed even more in the midst of all this to make things that yeah. much worse so look canadians brought this upon themselves by either indifference ignorance or just you know we're we're canadian we're, we're decent about these things but if uh, you're living in my area here in toronto you voted ndp you voted green you voted liberal you voted for a significant uh drawing down in your standard of living it's getting difficult to uh, understand the boundaries between those th- three parties, to be honest. Um, there is none. There is no, they're, in, they're indistinguishable. Yeah. And they should, they should end the charade right now and become one party. $3? Bet over whiskey? We're going to see it in 2022? No. No, I don't think so. But, uh, you know, uh, Putin goes nuts and decides that he's going to attack a NATO country. Then, they're, you know, three bucks would be a bargain. The problem isn't so much the price. The price would be a reflection of something far more uh, far more dangerous, and that's lack of supply, period. And I'm not just talking about you know trucks and cars and things like that. I'm talking about lack of supply for fertilizers, lack of supply to get our products to groceries to market. I'm talking about lack of supplies that will put people out of work, whether they're in cement factories, steel factories, manufacturing, agriculture, mining, lumber. The country will grind to a halt. And it's that serious. And you can't drive your little EVs, you know, jump in your Nissan Leaf and, and, and take, a, you know, a load of lumber uh, to, to your construction site. <laughs> it just isn't possible to do that. And so folks that think they can do that, trendy as that may be, uh, you're going to get a really, really rude awakening as to what trendy uh, politics can do. Uh, to uh, people who want to uh, make ends meet. Uh, you know, when you see somebody driving down the road with a mattress tied to their roof, that's what I just imagined with a little electric car with some two by fours tied to the roof. So that was great. That was a little bit of levity. Um, now, but imagine this, the trucks run on diesel, the trains run diesel over electric. Um, the more expensive diesel gets even moving grain and all those things. 
is going to be more and more expensive. And that's the simplest of all the cereals and breads and all the things. So, um, you know, it's worth noting. God, I wish this were a more positive conversation, Dan. I really do. Well, <laughs> I'll let the others change you the positive. I got to be, be real. And it, 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 some people don't like this, but Shane, I've been doing and warning this was going to happen for four or mm-hmm. five years. I talked to my American counterparts when I was with Gas Buddy, and many were in disbelief that such a thing could happen. They thought, oh, Canada's fine, everything's fine. I said, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come knocking on your door soon, the United States of America, and here's how it's going to happen. The same plan that uh, played out in Canada, keep your fossil fuels buried, is now happening in the United States. And it couldn't have happened at a worse time because the next war that we engage with, digital or otherwise, will be over energy. It will not be over, uh, you know, uh, hegemony over, you know, political uh, or, or orders and uh, and territory. It's going to be over who controls the energy. And uh, it's pretty clear that Putin has already played his game. He's already revealed his cards. He's got Europe where he wants them. And there's nothing Europe can do. They can jiggle. They can dance. They can do all the wonderful stuff about sanctions. They're totally meaningless because unless you're prepared to stop his ability to get oil flowing, that's how he made his money. And he's he's using this brilliantly and, and in a bloody way to, to by, by holding out the people of Ukraine as his as his pawns. But this isn't about rebuilding an empire. This is about demonstrating to the world that it needs to get really smart and wise and get back to where it was 10 years ago when it valued energy security. Well, let's not forget. I mean, we fought that for 30 years. Let's not forget that the uh, we could always go back to burning coal in downtown London to keep everybody warm and see how that feels. Um, or, or, or dung in certain parts yeah. of the world, which we Garbage. still do because of these folk. Yeah. Um, which is absolutely remarkable. Okay, uh, Canadians for Affordable Energy, it is absolutely staggering, the conversation not to be forgotten. And I will add this in the fortune-telling Dan McTagg. Once this energy conversation happens, the very next let's change the world is going to be water. And the next wars after this one are going to be fought over fresh water. You wait, I write it down. There's your forecast. And uh, that's the way it's going to go, at least according to me. <laughs> I, you're, just, you're just talking about hydrogen there. I know, I know. Yeah, not a subtle way of getting into some other energy discussion. <laughs> Dan McTagg, thanks for being here, bud. Good to be here, Shane. Have a good night. This is the Shift Podcast. When we need to go to space, there's only one spaceman that we trust, and that's Andrew. Andrew Ferreira is weird. So weird, he loves science more than sleep and other people. It's time for Andrew Ferreira's Weird Science. Weird Science, Andrew C. Ferreira. Um, Hey, buddy. Thanks for being here. Hi. Hi. <laughs> yeah, that's the voice. It's very similar to the voice of Ryan O'Donnell's sexy voice right there. Hi. We challenged Ryan O'Donnell to come on the radio with a sexy voice, and he sounded just like that. Try it one more time. Say it again. Hi. See, oh. that's Ryan O'Donnell's sexy voice. Oh, I'm, so hard. I'm, so sorry. I'm sure that Ryan is, is extremely sexy. I believe in him. <laughs> How you doing, buddy? Uh, I don't know. What are we allowed to talk about your new job? Uh, Yeah. I guess. Uh, um, so I know actually you're a student. A, yeah. Yes, I am. Let me, let me introduce this first here horrible. before you go. I know you're excited. Um, you're a student and you uh, you uh, love space and you love all things science and all that stuff. But on the side, you've been able to get yourself in front of one of your favorite things of all time and uh, and do that a little bit. So tell us. Yeah. So I'm actually, um, and I don't come on as a representative of, I just happen to work with 
the HR McMillan Space Center in Vancouver. Um, I picked up a like a casual part time gig, uh, talking about space to kids and blowing their their minds, uh, and it's just wonderful. Do you like? Is it amazing when you when the kids like when you see the kids fall in love with it? I mean, does that like take you back to when you were you know tiny and nerdy and you know I picture you being probably seven years old with a big beard like you do right now and loving science. Yeah, I mean, it takes me right back to you know six year old me with my beer gut and and, and a can of caribou in hand, uh, <laughs> walking into the space center and uh, uh, you know it, it's one of those things where like if you grew up in Vancouver, like the space center is like one of those institutions that you go to as a kid and then you kind of forget exists when you're in high school and then when you become an adult, you realize you want to do something fun and educational, uh, and the space center also does that kind of stuff. Um, they do a lot of like you know adult programming, like evening, like like lectures and talks like that, and it's just it's just awesome. So cool. if you're in the Vancouver area, it. just do it. Does, it's fun. It wasn't there. Uh, I don't even know what you call it. So forgive me. I'm going to use the uh, definitely not the right term. So wasn't there like uh, one of those big uh, telescopes or astronomy things in Victoria, just outside Saanich? Wasn't there like the big dome? Like wasn't there a big one there? I don't know if it's still there. It was up on the hill, but I'd imagine it's pretty bright out now. Oh, uh, like an observatory? Yeah, maybe that's it. I don't know. I mean, I mean, probably. Um, I, I know that near. Yeah, I want to say North Saanich or Saanich. There's either used to be or still is a uh, a big old observatory up there. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, even that, you know. And for folks who don't know the area, Saanich is maybe you know a thirty minute drive outside of BC's capital of Victoria. Um, it's not horrifically bright. Um, but you know, it's certainly, you know, over the past, especially 10, 15 years, it's certainly Victoria has become a bit of a sleepier town into more of a, you know, what looks like a suburb of Vancouver, if you're not looking carefully. Um, so I, I do want to accidentally stumbled onto a ferry for a couple hours. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I love it. Um, uh, okay, well, let's get started here. I know we've got a couple of things that we want to get through. All of them are super fantastic. And I think we start with the black hole because the black hole, mm. everybody has this Hollywood version of what a black hole is supposed to be. And shocker, Hollywood screws it up. What do we need to know? I mean, it depends what version of Hollywood you're looking at. If you're looking at a cult classic sci-fi film, The Black Hole, um, yeah, that's not very accurate at all. Uh, if you're looking at, you know, Interstellar, that's actually incredibly accurate. As oh. far as, you know, we can really say, having never been close enough to actually look at one with any real detail. Um, but in case you remember the first time that black holes were all over social media and like a couple of years ago when he first captured an image of uh, the first ever black hole, it was like a glowing, like an incandescent donut. Um, we got another one and it's our own black hole. Um, and it looks kind of like an incandescent donut, but with like three slightly more incandescent bits on the, uh, around it. Huh. So what does that mean? It's just like a, uh, a what does it mean? Yeah. Uh, it more or less lines up with what Einstein predicted. Of course it did. What hasn't lined up with what he's predicted. Um, but it is kind of, it's an interesting thing now that we've got now pictures of two black holes. Um, and unlike Hollywood, where it's kind of like these things will eat everything and anything, which is true. Um, the black hole at the center of our galaxy called Sagittarius A star. Yes, A star. You write that with an asterisk. Um, is not actually eating a whole bunch. It's just kind of chilling right now. Um, it, it's not, you know, it, 
it could be eating things, but right now there's just nothing really falling into it. Um, so it's kind of quiet, which, you know, has no real bearing on us, uh, besides the fact that maybe the images aren't quite as exciting as we might have hoped they would be. But they are exciting in the scientific way of going like, look, we've now got another picture of another black hole and these things we know now, we can see like they're lining up with all of our predictions. All scientific predictions have kind of said this is what it might look like. And so far, they're bang on. Uh, and it's for that reason that I think it's super exciting. Uh, not necessarily that this is, you know, some kind of spooky, uh, I'm not sure how to put it, like Hollywood level uh, terror of the void. It's just there far, far away um, at a distance that is essentially meaningless to all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact that we can see it is, is pretty outstanding and, and absolutely fascinating. Well, with the price of fuel today, the drive to get there is going to take a little while. You'll see that this is the best segue in the history of segues. So before we, mm. um, before we get to, um, you know, that part, it, it does beg the question of what is the, uh, if there's a black hole, what person would you put into it? Who would you volunteer to see what it looks like on the other side? 877-399-9898. If you could pick one person to send into the black Jeez. hole. I'm curious, uh, who would you like to, uh, to put at risk to, uh, send back? Now, with the, with the cost of fuel so high, nobody's driving to the black hole. Turns out, um, finally some interesting technology when it comes to rockets where you don't have to buy jet fuel, uh, to get there. Yeah, so, and this is one of the, file this away in the big nerd files, um, but basically DARPA, uh, our wonderful uh, south of the border uh, friends who like to develop top secret nuclear and like military things, uh, are moving forward with the development of a nuclear powered spacecraft. And now for those of us who are big sci-fi nerds, we might say, oh, nuclear powered spacecraft, that's not all that interesting or new because that's everywhere in science fiction. Uh, fusion drives and fission drives are just a thing that people are used to in science fiction. But in reality, these are things that we don't really have yet. And if this kind of, and what they're trying to do here is this is just a proposal. Uh, this isn't, you know, anything that's really built. Um, but if they're able to demonstrate, and this is, I love this, it's called the Draco program, a demonstration rocket for agile cislunar operations. I like Draco better. Uh, but basically, if this thermal <laughs> nuclear, evil. if this nuclear thermal rocket engine uh, wins out the the contract on the Draco mission, uh, the next phases of that will be, you know, design, development, uh, and assembly um, of this. And this is something that I think going forward, if humanity wants to like actually do this whole go to space thing, um, chemical rockets are fine for what we have now, but they're incredibly like not fuel efficient. Um, you need, like, if you recall the, the shuttle launches, there's like, like all of those gigantic cylinders full of like fuel. And essentially all of that is just to go about a hundred kilometers up like that. All of that just for a hundred kilometers. Um, and so people are kind of going, well, maybe nuclear thermal isn't going to solve that problem. But once we get into space, that's where stuff like ion drives, if you're familiar with that. Uh, and nuclear thermal can really take off. Whereas ion drives are kind of, uh, they're real. Don't let people fool you. They're very real, and they are used in real missions right now. Um, but ion drives are very much a slow and steady kind of acceleration, whereas with a thermal, with a nuclear thermal rocket engine, uh, you, could, you, could, you could potentially actually do you know real good speeds with that. And of course, 
the goal for this one, this demonstration flight isn't even scheduled for 2026 at this point. And with all you know, the difficulty of space, space is hard. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see that 2026 deadline slip a little bit. Uh, but could this be the beginning of, you know, a multi-decade long, you know, mission to get nuclear, you know, thermal rocket engines going? If we can do that, I think that would be pretty sweet. Well, that sounds cool. I mean, refilling in space, it's not like you can just set up a Stratocaster floating around yeah. out there because it's going to use all the fuel to to get there. Um, yep. But I, it does seem late to me, Andrew. I mean, we've got all these nuclear-powered aircraft carriers and submarines in the world and all these things. Uh, why don't we have this stuff sooner? It's on a whole other level of, you know, uh, safeguards and checks that need to happen. Uh, really, that's the basis of it. And plus... Uh, innovation is slow, especially in space. If you look at NASA's space launch system, it's SLS. It's essentially using the exact same boosters as the Apollo mission did in the 70s. Why? Because it's cheaper to just keep them the same. Uh, and I feel like that's kind of what's happened with spaceship propulsion in general. Uh, until a technology becomes cheap enough and reliable enough uh, that it can displace, you know, generally chemical rockets, it's not going to go anywhere. So that's a big reason why I think it's taken so long uh, for nuclear to actually seriously enter the picture for spaceship uh, propulsion. And I still think like, and here's my pessimistic outlook. I still think it'll be, you know, at least 40 or 50 years uh, before we can reasonably expect, you know, spacecraft to use uh, nuclear thermal uh, propulsion in any meaningful way outside of demonstration missions or, or small payloads. Well, yeah, I hope I'm proven wrong. Uh, because I think that nuclear power uh, really does unlock not just a lot of stuff, you know, potential in space, but even here on Earth. I think nuclear power gets overlooked so, so often um, as, a, as, a, as an energy source. But I digress. Yeah. That's an entire other com a conversation. Well, yeah, that's a whole big conversation. And I, I, I hear you on that one um, because I still carry with me. I'm older than you, Andrew. I still carry with me, you know, the storylines of Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. And then I just watched the Three Mile Island documentary on Netflix, which I think oh, that everybody should watch. Right. But I think everybody should watch it because no, then you can sure. see you can see that uh, the nuclear wasn't the problem. The humans were the problem. Yep. And I think that that's incredibly important to di differentiate when they talk about these because nuclear reactors today are smaller um, and they're not as big and ugly like they used to be. And there's an awful lot of talk about power generation in Canada and all those things. And and um, yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that we need to we as Canadians need to learn more about it because we do carry those old memories about what that looks like. So you have a good point there. Appreciate that. Andrew C. Mm -hmm. Ferreira, it's weird science on Mars. Uh, looks like they found, you know, Chewbacca's front door. Uh, no. No, they didn't find I Chewbacca's I, I, I front door. I love raining on the parade. It looks um, like a doorway. There's a photo. I'll post it at shiftheads.ca. In the side of a mountain, it's literally carved away. It looks like a doorway. That cannot be natural, Andrew Ferreira. It's 100% natural. No. Yeah. How? Erosion is wild, man. Have you seen erosion, some of the stuff that erosion like a, does here on Earth? With yeah, like funky but I mean, looking like pillars and like weird things that look like they shouldn't like hoodoos, be standing. I, I get that, but it, I mean, this is literally a perfectly carved door. Yeah. I mean, it's not perfect. It just looks perfect. There's plenty. You know, it, it's easy for a rock, especially if you look at the image. Um, it's like a, a wall of stratified rock that's very easy to chip away in nice geometric shapes. Um, oh, all it no. needs, and like 
Mars has Mars quakes. These are real things. Um, the InSight lander actually detected a magnitude five Mars quake not too long ago, which is the biggest one yeah. it's detected yet. Um, so this kind of seismic activity that could potentially create this, combined with you know natural erosion, um, rock being rock, and just eventually, sometimes stress fractures will just get bigger and bigger. Um, and when you actually look at the image, uh, when you zoom when, and you zoom in it and you'll find pictures of this all zoomed in as people are trying to say, no, no, this is a door. Um, it's not. It's just like a little, like a hollow in the rock. Um, Dude, I zoomed in. There's a ring doorbell. Mm, I hope not. Those things. <laughs> that might have been that doctor, was up there. I don't saying? know. I don't know how that got up there, but you know, <laughs> you know, that's probably not all that secure. And I have all my cybersecurity worries. But anyway, <laughs> it's, I, it's nice to. It's it's nice to to have. Like I, I think like the image is great just for the fact that it got people to pay attention to something. It's um, true. In in a scientific way, even if people went into it going, no, no, it's a door. Um, it's not. I. Again, it, it's not. It looks but, like someone carved it in but half. But it, it does really look. Does. It does look like something carved out of a rock face that you would find, you know, on ruins here on Earth. Um, and while it's not that at all, um, it is interesting. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, I, if you had told me and said, "Hey, there's everyone's talking about a door on Mars that was caused by erosion," I'd be like, "Hey, I did erosion in grade eight science as my project. I love erosion, man." And then I, we'd be talking about it, whatever. But then you see this picture and you go, "Either this picture's doctored, and that's not legit, or that's a doorway." Also, I would have liked to be in the room when they saw this for the first time, and the very first person who saw the picture went, "No way." I mean, I'm sure at first blush, you'd probably have a couple of eyebrows raised. But when you actually, like, dig into what the picture shows, that doorway is only about three feet tall. Um, yeah, so it is about a like, meter, they said, yeah. Yeah, it's not uh, some monolithic entrance um, that kind of is a gateway to another world or anything. It's just a slab of rock that's probably just fallen away due to erosion and geological stress over time. Mars has had nothing happening on it you know, in any major way for hundreds of millions of years. Uh, this kind of thing is probably, you know, remember we've seen, we saw the face on Mars, which wasn't a face. It just happened to be rocks that happened to be coincidentally shaped in a way that when the shadow hits it just right, kind of looks like a face. I think this is just one of those things where like, yeah, it looks like a door, but it, it, it isn't. If you're going to tell me that the man on the moon isn't real, uh, friends off. Uh, I hate to break it to you. Ah, unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, man. But, I mean, if we're going to talk about a three-foot doorway on Mars that looks like a three-foot doorway on Mars, well, then. Where's the kaboom? There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. Seems about the right size for Marvin. Just saying, Andrew, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree, even though you have science and facts behind you. And I No, don't. no, I do think that it's about the right size for Marvin, <laughs> if, if he it. was real. Uh, it's beautiful. Congratulations on the new gig, buddy. Really appreciate you. uh, your hard work. That's cool. I'm really, no, I am. I mean it. I'm proud of you for, you know, sharing the love of the science. I think that's, it's important that people like you do that. Science is cool. And, uh, even if you don't think it's cool, uh, it's cool whether or not you think it is. So. Andrew C. Ferreira, weird science. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.